Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Hello and welcome to Garden Success. Now I know that you've got all your Christmas shopping done. I know that the house is clean, uh, everything's ready to go for family, and you have nothing else to do but sit down and listen to Garden Success to talk about your garden, right? Well, let me go ahead and live in that (laughs) belief. I am looking forward, though, to talking to some of you today, and I hope you will pick up the phone and give us a call. Uh, Our number, by the way, I um, I wanted to say one thing before I before I get into the number and everything. Our email is gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Gardensuccess one word at tamu dot edu. And our number, if you want to give us a call, is nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine eight four five five six eight nine. You know the. <laughs> This time of the year, it, it, it's kind of like a lull when it comes out to getting things done in the landscape because our eyes are on and our hearts are on being with family or enjoying the holidays, uh, wh- however you do that. And, it, you know, the garden tends to be a little bit ignored. I actually have been busy out in mine. I uh, I had a there's a saying that the cobbler's kids go barefoot. And I jokingly have told people here that if uh, you could see my garden, there are certain times of the year, if you could see my garden, you'd quit listening to the show. (laughs) And it's just because I get busy and I, you know, I get going from one thing to another. Uh, I know and advise you on things like make sure you have good drainage and all of that kind of thing. Well, we moved into a house a little while back and uh, I put a garden in just because I had to get something going to mess with. And it was a horribly drained spot. The slope was fine. It didn't look low, but the clay was dense. And it was unbelievable uh, how that stayed just continually moist all summer long. I mean, it never got dry out there. And so now I'm in the process of putting in some boxes, raised beds, so I can garden and enjoy it. We had a few vegetables that survived and thrived even uh, and did well there. Some were kind of surprises to me. I was really surprised by how well the okra did. Uh, I just kind of didn't think that it would put up with the swamp, but it seemed to do pretty good. Uh, but anyway, now I'm putting in boxes, and then I'll be filling them with a good quality mix, and I'm just really looking forward to doing that and having a more productive garden next year. Uh, but it's just a, a reminder to me to remind you, if you're going to put a garden into the ground, uh, you definitely need good drainage 
the the system we used to use when we were talking up to people who were wanting to put in a peach orchard, for example, is we would or a pecan orchard or something along those lines. We would say take a post hole digger and dig a hole two feet deep, straight down, and then fill it with water. And it's pr it's best to do that when the soil is moist, not when it's dry. You want a good representation of the drainage when there is moisture in the soil. And uh, fill it with water and then come back. Uh, if it drains in eight hours, that's pretty good. If it drains in 12 hours, that's okay. 24 hours, you can probably get by with it, but that's getting pretty iffy and longer than that. You've just got a spot that is too poorly drained for a pecan tree, peach tree, or, or something else along those lines to do its best and thrive. And in those cases, we build raised beds. Even even in an orchard, the A&M um, breeding and testing orchard used to be over on uh, West Campus, uh, right off of University. And uh, now those apartment buildings have gone in, all kinds of other things, or student housing and other things have gone in, and that's long gone. But I remember when I was going to school here, uh, seeing these high terraces, you know, there'd be a, a real high terrace that the trees were planted on and then it would drop down into the low drainage area and then back up to the next row for another terrace. And so you can grow things even when the soil is not ideal, uh, but drainage is important. And some things like like a peach tree would be probably the prime example. You, you just can't let them sit in soggy wet conditions. In the same yard, we had a um, fig tree when we moved in. And the fig produced these open eye figs. The little belly button on the end of the fig was open. And those types end up getting little beetles in them. They get sour, and then the wasps or yellow jackets come in and, and start to feed on that fermented uh, material that's dripping out, and it's just a mess. And so you always want to plant a closed eye fig, either that it's tightly closed or that it has a drop of resin that's sealing that opening up. And the varieties we recommend are all that way. Well, anyway, I was going to pull this tree out, and when I dug it out, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, the entire root system was no deeper than five inches. The trunk hit the ground and went left and right sideways, flat, like a pancake. You could have flipped it upside down, set a glass uh, cover over it, and had a nice coffee table. I mean, it was just literally five inches was the deepest one, and it's because the soil is clay, the soil is tight, the soil is poorly, poorly drained, which means it's poorly oxygenated. Roots need oxygen, and uh, that, uh, when I saw that, I realized the problem I had in my yard, so what am I going to do about it? Well, raise boxes for a vegetable garden, um, putting in a um, a French drain, I'll talk about that in just a moment, uh, to get some of the water out of there faster, and then other raised beds for my landscape plantings. And if you do that, you can grow anywhere. I mean, you can, you, you could literally be on a um, limestone outcropping in central Texas where the soil is four inches deep, or on a parking lot, for crying out loud. If you make a big enough pile of, ma of a growing mix or, or soil, you can grow right on top of a parking lot. Uh, and so the the goal is just to provide good drainage and, and to do whatever it takes to do that. Now, the, now the French drain is really a, a system where you have a trench in the ground and you put rock in the trench and a um, like a perforated pipe like you would see in the old time septic drain fields. If 
you lived in the country and didn't hook up to city sewer, uh, you would have a pipe that takes that affluent out and it leaks out of the pipe into the soil. This is a backwards version of that. You want the soil that the water that's coming across the yard to go down in that trench, go into the pipe, and then exit out at some place lower. Uh, that might be the street at the curb or where, depending on where you live, someplace lower. And if you if you can do that, that takes care of all the excess standing water. So that puddle that may be there for four days after a rain or longer, uh, that's got to be dealt with. And, and a French drain uh, can do that. Uh, there are inf there's information online on how to do it yourself. Uh, like any project, you got to know what you're doing. So either really get read up on it so you know how to do it or hire somebody who knows how to do it. And uh, uh, it would even help. I, I would recommend you do a lot of online reading and searching. You're going to find contradictory information, but you kind of can figure out who knows what they're talking about. And then when you hire somebody, you can talk to them about what they're going to do and, and is that adequate. Is the, is the um, piping or the, the, the lines that are going across the yard, uh, are they able to drain the size of property that they need to drain? Where's the water coming from? Is it your yard or your neighbor's yard? And how, how big do those trenches need to be? Because the bigger the trench, the more water can move in and move out. Uh, in terms of speed, you know, even a small trench is going to move water out, but not as fast. So those are things to think about. And of course, they're on my mind because I'm out there in the muck and mire uh, these past weeks uh, experiencing it and getting it right. Uh, our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at garden success. it's one word, at tamu dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu and i'd love for you to email or call preferably call it's more interesting to talk to you than to listen to me drone on but i am prepared to drone on today if that's what it's going to take i realize the season we're in and uh, as much as it breaks my heart listening to garden success is not the top of your list i bet but thank you for being here I uh, was getting a lot of calls these past few weeks on lawn weeds. And if you listen to the show regularly, you kind of know my mantras about lawn weeds. But basically, lawn weeds occur primarily where sunlight hits the soil. Now, that means if your grass is thin, if you mow it super, super short, and it's not dense, you mow irregularly short. If you mow it regularly short, it, it can be dense. Uh, and whenever sunlight hits the soil, that weed seed gets, uh, as it sprouts, it gets light, it germinates, and, you're, and it, here we go. If it tries to sprout and it can't get enough light to survive, that little seedling is choked out by the grass and dies. Now, some weeds can coexist in a dense lawn. Uh, St. Augustine is our number one lawn around here. Zoysia is denser than St. Augustine, and Bermuda grass can be denser than St. Augustine if you, if you mow them right. Uh, but the, those kind of weeds are things like uh, horse herb, uh, or strag straggler daisy is another name for it, uh, Virginia buttonweed, um, dichondra, uh, or... Um, Dollar weed would be examples of weeds that can coexist. Many of those, they like wet conditions. Uh, 
this, the last few I mentioned all like wet conditions. And so when we overwater our lawn or have really poor drainage, in addition to that, we encourage those weeds to proliferate. And just by letting it dry out, which is how we should water our lawn anyway, a good soaking followed by a good drying out period, uh, they just don't get the upper hand. So they'll stay there, but they're not taking over. But the annual weeds are the ones that we most often are dealing with, and those just good mow water fertilized practices. Mow water fertilized. That's those are the three best herbicides for a lawn: mowing right, watering right, fertilizing right. And by doing those, you you end up encouraging your grass to do its own weed control. Now, when you have the weeds that are persistent, we have to use products or hand pull, or it depends on the particular weeds you're going after. Uh, but the others. We just get a lot of questions. Right now, we're entering the cool season weed period. So you don't see them out there. They're there. You may see some. But things like henbit and chickweed and carpetweed, those are all cool season weeds. Annual bluegrass, a little grassy weed that plagues golf courses and home lawns, too. Uh, those are all have been sprouting since probably back in late September, early October. And now they're sitting there waiting for spring when they're going to take off. And it's like, where did it come from? Well, it's been sitting there. It's like a blue bonnet. Our native uh, blue bonnets, if you go out in the wild where blue bonnets grow, you will find the little plants at the ground, uh, just in what I would call a rosette, a little small plant. As we move through the winter and the day length starts to get longer in the spring and warms up a little bit, they take off growing, flowering, setting seeds, and then dying uh, to repeat the cycle next year. Same thing with your lawn weeds that are cool season weeds, the ones we mentioned and some more. So what we want to do is either we prevent them, which is long too, long too late for that, uh, or we would then just need to mow regularly uh, as they start to come up or do hand pulling or use a treatment that is post-emergent. It would kill an existing weed. Uh, and a lot of people have different opinions about using uh, various types of pesticides, herbicides uh, on, on their property. Uh, I'm not here to, you know, convince you one way or the other. Uh, but if you, if you don't mind using those, they need to be used correctly. You want to use them safely for your own sake, for the environment's sake, and for your lawn's sake, uh, and for your tree's sake. Uh, some of the broadleaf products... If you put them down and you get too much down, you over-apply, which people tend to do, and then you get a good gully washer rain to move them down into the soil, you can see damage to trees. I see it every year on live oaks and other trees that someone misapplied a herbicide to the soil, and now the tree is showing the symptoms. St. Augustine grass, some of them also are very hard on St. Augustine grass when they're over-applied or when they're applied when it's too hot. And so you need to know what you're doing. That's why we recommend if you've got a weed, send us a picture and uh, let's take a look at it, identify it, and then suggest what you should do to control it. Uh, because depending on if it's warm season, cool season, if it's an annual or a perennial, uh, whether it's a broadleaf or a grass or a sedge, those are a whole bunch of factors that really direct the best recommendation. So when you go to the garden center and you see a bag of weed and feed, well, my first question is, what weed? Because when you would put on a pre-emergent or a post-emergent is going to vary depending on the weed you're going after. And I just 
say the time to weed is not the time to feed, especially in the spring. You can make a case for it being a little closer in the fall, but um, uh, in, in the springtime, it's coming up in a little over a month, uh, we're going to be putting down a pre-emergent for summer weeds. So that would be about mid-February. It's really dependent on the soil temperature, but generally about mid-February is a pretty good time here for warm season weed preventive, not killing existing, but preventing the seeds from warm season weeds to come up. It is way too early to fertilize at that time. You need to fertilize after you've mowed twice, which is going to be sometime in the first two weeks of April, most likely. So when you put on a combination product, when are you going to put it down? When it's time to fertilize? And so you didn't do the preventive weed you wanted to do. Uh, and then some of the products even have preventive products in them. So I say buy the fertilizer you need and apply it when it should be applied. And if you're going to use a weed killer, choose the weed killer you want apply it at the right time and follow the label instructions. There's sometimes some other factors where things can go wrong. So that's a whole lot about weeds, but we are we are starting to see the cool season weeds coming in. And uh, there's certain weeds, the um, uh, little lavender pink colored daisy-like, aster-like blossoms about the size of a dime that were just up everywhere the last few months. Uh, that is slender aster. It's one of the fall blooming asters that we have. We have some that are landscape plants. Uh, and that particular weed, once it sets its, in the, once the first bloom pops out, you can see where it is. It hides well on the grass through the growing season. Uh, but then you just get on your hands and knees and, and it comes out of one spot in the ground, one little tap-like root, and it's easy to pull up if the soil is moist. Now, if you've got a one-acre lawn and it's solid, slender aster, okay, uh, that's not going to be a hand-pull situation. But for most people, they have a few here and there. But just know that if you deal with them, right away when you see that, you prevent thousands upon thousands of weed seeds coming up next year and the problem gets much, much worse. So hand pulling is also a viable option. And then for the most relaxed, laid back among you, the best way to control weeds, and I, I'm stealing this from um, uh, Felder Rushing, a horticulturist over in Mississippi. I love it. But you can make all your weeds go away instantly if you're looking at your lawn, you just take off your glasses and all you see is a big, green, beautiful lawn. Uh, taking off your glasses is the cheapest, most organic, most um, effective way to get rid of all your weeds instantly. Nothing is faster than that. Just take off your glasses. And what am I saying? Well, I'm joking, of course, but uh, it, it just means relax. You know, we sometimes in gardening, and, and we range a lot in gardening, we have uh, <laughs> we have people that are just neurotic, uh, you know. They everything every hedge has to be trimmed perfectly square or maybe into the shape of an animal, uh, and you know the lawn cannot have anything other than the lawn grass species in it. Uh, just on and on and on. Everything's in rows and things. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that just like wildscapes or maybe not quite that far, maybe just cottage gardens where things run a little wilder. And the more you move toward the relaxed end, um, I'm not saying that everybody should just let the lawn go wild. Certainly some HOAs might take objection to that, right? But th there, there is a certain 
price that we pay when we want everything to be a certain kind of aesthetically perfect. And that price comes in the time of money, it comes in the time of our time, uh, uh, comes in the form of money, comes in the form of, of our time, and sometimes it comes in the form of environmental repercussions uh, when we go after that. So uh, I would encourage you to decide where on that scale you are, and I find that as people become more enthusiastic about learning about plants and different kinds of habitats and and all the other things that are out there, from butterflies to birds to you name it, uh, they tend to relax a little bit. It's just not the perfectly uh, groomed everything all the time. So you decide where on that scale you're going to be. <laughs> That's your business. Well, our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. Or you can reach me by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu another another question that we're we're getting these days is regarding planting plants uh, what what should I plant is this a good plant is this a good shrub or is this a good tree to plant and uh, you know when's the best time to plant is it too late to plant now is it too early to plant well, we live in a very mild zone, with the exception of that few days last February, we live in an extremely mild zone. And because of that, we can plant any time of year. Uh, now in the summer, it's very difficult for plants to get established and survive, but it can be done. It's just not easy. Uh, but once we cool off a bit in the fall, let's say October, uh, we can start planting all those woody ornamentals and perennials. That would be trees, shrubs, woody vines, and all the perennial flowers, ornamental grasses, herbs, uh, perennial, perennial herbs, and, and perennial flowers, of course, uh, because they have all winter to get established before the next growing season starts and the demands of summer uh, hit them. When you pull a plant out of the pot, the whole root system, of course this is obvious, the whole root system is nowhere else but that single little cylinder. And you've got a big plant that had it grown in the wild would have had roots reaching beyond the branches of that plant. And so now we have this over-confined, wound-up root tanglement that it doesn't establish well. So you want to cut those roots on the outside. Uh, I usually, if it's not giant roots, I just use a box cutter knife and cut vertically from top to bottom around the outside of the cylinder in about three or four places. It seems horrible to, to do that, but believe me, the plant will produce new roots within a week or two. It'll already be uh, putting out new roots that are growing underground and establishing well. Now, roots don't grow fast all winter, but you do get some better establishment by giving them those months of a head start. So I would recommend that you do that uh, when you plant, and any time you want to plant is a good time. Uh, I know now people are kind of busy with family and things, but, you know, uh, what is the saying that um, sometimes house guests can be like fish? They're, they're good the first day, but then they start to, to smell a little bit. Well, if, if you hit that situation and you need to, to kind of get away, uh, that would be a good time to go outside and plant a tree. <laughs> so that may be another reason uh, to consider that. All the leaves that are falling on your landscape belong in your landscape. That's what nature does. Nobody rakes a forest. Nobody bags the meadow. All of those organic materials, free 
organic fertilizer, free nutrients. It's the nutrients the tree took up, it's the nutrients your lawn took up during the year, or in the leaves and the grass clippings and so on. So those leaves, you can bag them and get them out of there. I understand you need to bag them or you need to get rid of them in terms of getting them off the lawn because the lawn needs sunlight. Even over the winter time, it needs a little bit of sunlight. Um, but I would shred them with a lawnmower. That's what I do. And uh, I put some, put a bunch of them in bags kind of as a stockpile for later. Some people love composting, and that's another great way to do it. You speed up nature's process that way. Or you can just, I shred mine and just throw them around shrubs and trees and use them as mulch and garden walkways and on the garden beds. And by stockpiling them, you help take that winter leaf season and stretch it all through the year. You get the benefits from it. Uh, don't worry about diseases. Any disease on a leaf in your yard is not going to be a problem for your flower beds, for your vegetable gardens, and really, practically speaking, even for the trees. And think about this. Someone once called and asked, can I mulch my oak trees with oak leaves? And nature does every day. Diseased, insect-infested leaves fall on the ground, rot, and feed that tree. That's called a forest. And so, yes, you can use those leaves. No, you don't need to worry about diseases. Shred them up and use them. We, the number is a, is a hard one to nail down scientifically. I've been trying to find a good study on this, but we believe that about 75% of the nutrients that a tree takes up during the year are in its leaves. Now you think, well, what about all the wood that it grows? Well, there's stuff in wood, but it, a lot of the, when we think of a fertilizer and all those kind of nutrients, uh, the leaves are the ones mostly packed with that. Wood contains carbon uh, and, and uh, other, some nutrients, but not anything like the leaves. And uh, in fact, there was a study done, and I can't remember the name of it. I can't think of the guy's name. It's a long time ago. A guy did a study where he took a giant container of soil, I mean a large one, and he weighed the soil, and then he put a tree in it, a little transplant stuck in there, a bare root transplant, and he grew it for, I don't know, five years or something, and then he took the tree out, knocked all the soil off the roots, and he weighed the soil again. By the way, he weighed it as dry soil both times, so this wasn't a moisture weight thing. And I think it was just a few ounces that the soil had lost. So where did the tree's weight come from? Where did the trunk and where did the branches come from? Well, it came from the air. Carbon, oxygen, um, uh, let's see, uh, what is it? Oh, there, well, there's some nitrogen there, but primarily the carbon and the oxygen that's coming out of the air uh, is a big part of forming the uh, many of the plant parts that we have. Now we think of our fertilizer as what makes something grow. Well, it does boost growth, but the, you take a giant tree trunk, that did not come from fertilizer. It, there, some of it came from some nitrogen in the soil and other nutrients, a little bit, but it's primarily coming out of the air. And that was a really uh, surprise uh, for, for folks at that time because they thought trees ate the soil, literally. They thought that the roots took the soil in and made the tree with it. And that's just not the case. Uh, and it, it's fascinating. Uh, go, go hunt it down sometime. Man, I wish I could think of, maybe I'll think of the guy's name who did the study, if you're interested, uh, uh, years and years ago. Uh, but that, 
That was really an eye-opener. Well, let's go to the phones. Uh, our number is 845-5689, and we're going to talk to Syed. Hello, Syed. Hello, Syed. How are you? Well, I'm well. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Happy holidays to you. And Thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad that I got in touch with you. Uh, my questions are about uh, two items. One is uh, the pruning of uh, roses and plumbagos and also fertilizing those uh, bushes. Okay. Um, is it okay to do it at this time or it's too late? Uh, you know, I would wait a little bit. Um, pruning is a stimulating process, and as long as a plant has leaves and is alive and growing when you yes. prune it wants to send out new growth to replace that and we're not yet into the real winter for crying out loud it's going to be 83 degrees this week and so right. once we get into winter let's say we get into january or february yes you know those are those are good months to prune on on the roses uh but i you could get away with it now but you know, if we go through a week of 80s, they're going to re-sprout, and that tender new growth is just going to be killed by a good hard freeze at some point. Correct. Now, the yeah. plumbago, that's a perennial, and sometimes it dies all the way to the ground. Sometimes it doesn't quite die to the ground, depending on, on where you live in the winter and everything. And so I, it is fine to cut it all the way back to a few inches high uh, at, toward the end of winter and let all the fresh new growth come back. So it kind of depends on you, what you're looking at. Um, you know, it, if you don't want it to look scraggly, bringing out fresh new growth is fine. But there are a lot of people that don't cut them back much. I understand. I also, I hesitate uh, to do this because all the these precious uh, shrubs are full of uh, flowers right now. And yes. The beautiful bloom on them and just to trim that down. It, it just, uh, I don't feel well yes. about it. But yes, it's best uh, I'll wait till about the uh, middle of uh, January or early February to do that. that that's How about probably the best. Fertilizing, uh, excuse me. Go ahead. Well, I, I would fertilize them once they're growing enough to to really take the nutrients up and put them to work. So uh, some nutrients, uh, nitrogen is probably the most volatile. It washes away. It goes off as a gas. It gets taken up by microbes and and it. It's kind of a, a moving target, the nitrogen in the soil. So I would wait until spring. We got some new growth. Get a couple of get a couple of weeks into spring before you even think about starting to fertilize those things. Okay. Now other other nutrients. I'm sorry, I said I, I paused there. The potassium is also uh, tends to wash away. Uh, the others stick around a little bit longer. So, but I I think it's best just to wait because primarily it's nitrogen that we need in the most quantity, along with uh, some phosphorus and potassium. Very good. I have got a, a mix of uh, Saint Augustine and Bermuda on my lawn, and there are large patches. We used to have this in the, in the past, but this time it looks like the large patches of uh, brown grass here and. It just doesn't look good, and it looks like it's a fungus infection. I don't know what is going on, but yes. there's no treatment for it, isn't it? Uh, there's no treatment now. Uh, that's a, a disease called large patch, and large patch is a fungus that lives in that moist environment down in the thatch of the grass. 
and when the weather cools off a little bit, uh, it really takes off. And we typically see those circles starting in October. Uh, but once they, what they do, what the disease does is it rots where the leaf attaches to the runner, where the grass blade attaches. So the runner stays healthy and green, but the leaf rots and turns yellow and then brown or tan. And you can grab them and they just pull right off. In fact, I, I have some spots in my yard and I mowed the other day and my mower isn't real great at picking up clippings. Uh, I usually return them anyway. But I noticed that there were long uh, brown or tan leaves of grass because as it hit the, the leaves, they just broke loose and flew everywhere rather than it cutting them off. Uh, and, and that disease, the browning, if we have a fairly warm winter, you can get some regreening inside that area, or maybe it didn't get all of it. But in general, you kind of have to wait till spring for that spot to turn green again. Okay. So it's not good to rake it uh, right now and try to get those uh, dead-looking uh, yeah. out? Or? Yeah, I understand the desire to do that aesthetically. Uh, but I was talking about weeds in the lawn earlier. And the more you take off stuff and let the sun get through to the soil, then you're going to be dealing with spring weeds in those spots. And I think it's not going to mean that if you don't rake it that you won't have any weeds. It just means anything we do to block the light from the soil is a good thing. So I would, I'm not going to rake mine out. I'm not going to try to clean leave it. Leave it alone. Yeah, I would leave it. It's a ubiquitous disease. In other words, it's not like if you rake it out, then you won't have it next year. No, it's 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 all over the place and you'll have it. Okay. Great. Thank you, Skip, and have a wonderful holiday and happy new year to you and uh, talk to you again next year. Well, thank you, Sayed. I appreciate the call. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our number, 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.com. Edu. And so far, I don't have any emails to answer today. Uh, just if Hans is listening, Hans I'm, sent me a weed. I'm going to have to look that one up. Hans, that's an unfamiliar one to me. Uh, but we'll try to get you an answer to that. I did uh, receive a notice from the uh, Post Oak chapter of the Native Plant Society of Texas. Uh, Native Plant Society is a statewide organization, and uh, here locally, we're in the Post Oak chapter. That's a good name for it, right, in the Post Oak Belt here. Uh, they're going to have, a gen in their January meeting on Thursday, January 6th at 6.30 p.m., via Zoom online, they're going to have a program on how native plants have made my life way more exciting by Cheryl Smith Rogers. <laughs> so uh, if you want to hear a, a good appeal for the benefits and the reasons to plant native plants, uh, I think this would be a great way to, to do it. Uh, so that's January 6th, which is a Thursday at 6.30 p.m. via Zoom. And the link is, uh, if you got a pen or pencil handy, tinyurl.com slash frogfruit. Frogfruit, one word tinyurl.com slash frogfruit, one word, everything one word. And uh, that uh, is how you get there for the link. There's no charge for that, and you're welcome to join them. I know they'd love to have you. Uh, let's see. I'm gonna, I've am gonna. i been talking about some weeds in the lawn and the benefits of leaves and why they're so good for our plants and why we shouldn't 
bag them. In fact, if your neighbors bag them, I would encourage you to consider bringing some of those home uh, and taking advantage of them, especially if you have a vegetable garden or other places. Sometimes I will rototill mine into the soil, kind of break them up a little bit. And if you've got a big, uh, uh, let's say, sycamore leaf, it's kind of hard to rototill into the soil. Uh, but if you run over them with a mower a couple times, shred them up, they mix in very well. And they, it's, it's a way of kind of speeding up the soil building process. So you put a bunch of them in the soil now, and by the time it's time for spring planting, that soil will be mellow, ready to go. Those will be decomposed. You've got more organic matter in the soil. And typically for those areas where I'm not going to plant, I will mulch them. Now, if it's a vegetable garden out back where nobody really driving by sees it, you can just throw a bunch of leaves on there. Shredding them helps them stay in place. Uh, but you can use any kind of a mulch over the surface, again, to prevent the weeds. You don't want to get the spring fever for gardening and then suddenly have to go out and pull weeds first. I mean, that that's no fun at all. So keep keep the ground covered with a blanket of leaves. Again, what does nature do? That's what nature does in the forest. And uh, then you'll be ready to go when it's time for spring planting. Also, uh, anytime you can work the soil when it's dry enough to work is a good time to make your beds. So uh, again, think about this. You've got a little flat spot out there and you believed what I said today about drainage is important. And here comes, let's say, the first of March and you're ready to plant something. And it's been raining all week you're up a creek. You you can't get those tomatoes in a little early or uh, the other things you want to do. But if you make your beds ahead of time and mulch them well, when it's time to plant, you just go out and plant. It's already done because when you work the soil when it's wet, it destroys the internal structure of the soil. And uh, that's a negative effect. When, when we have garden beds, we don't want to walk on them because that uh, smashes down the par the particles so as to reduce airspace in the soil, uh, and we don't want when they're wet want to want to work through them. So always work your soil when it's when it's moderately moist, not dry, not wet, and it'll do really well. I want to talk a little bit um, about some uh, let's let's think of them as maybe a New Year's resolution. I maybe later. As we get to the new year, we'll, we'll talk about that again. But these are just kind of things to think about as you get ready to garden next year. Things that maybe you would uh, enjoy um, doing in a way that, that enhances your property uh, versus something that costs time and money. And then later, you find that you've kind of created problems. And, and I said one a moment ago, and that's cutting the roots on plants that are grown in round pots. And uh, that's just so important uh, to do that. Sometimes plants stay in the pot way too long and they have a lot of roots. Sometimes they grow in a smaller pot, like a gallon pot, and a root goes around and then they move it up to a five gallon pot and the root goes around. And so inside you have buried this circling root that you don't see. Uh, so some, some uh, tree specialists, foresters, will say that on, on those kinds of things, uh, they do root washing. They literally take a hose with a strong stream of water and they blast all the soil that was on those pots, in, around the roots in those pots. That way they can see the structural things inside that they want to prune and remove and get it ready to go back in the ground. And there's nothing wrong with that either, especially during the dormant season. That's, that's just fine, just fine way to plant. Uh, but that was one thing. Uh, another thing that I think is 
is huge, is to plant species and varieties that want to grow here. A lot of times we, maybe in a magazine on gardening from New Jersey or California or, you know, Minnesota or someplace, we, we see these wonderfully beautiful plants, but they're not made for our climate, just like many of ours aren't made for those other climates. And so those species just don't do well here. And what, what happens is, when that's the case with the species, they try to find ways to make a species more adaptable. For example, you'll see th this lilac does best in the south. Well, it does best in the south, but that just means that it'll take a few days longer for it to die than the other lilacs that are out there, for example. Uh, and I'm jokingly exaggerating, but uh, there isn't a, a lilac for the south, for our level of the south. Now, if you call, uh, you know, Tennessee the south, well, yeah. But uh, So anyway, uh, choose something that's adapted to your area as a species. And this is where native plants really shine. Uh, we, I mean, if it's from here, it grows here, right? Uh, I had a call last week at the extension office, and someone was wanting to plant a row of juniper-type hedges around their property, and they're several hundred feet of, of fence line. And if you think about what, you know, a, a decent-sized container plant would cost, a juniper, for example, uh, that's, that's a lot. And to plant several hundred feet of them, um, you know, that, that'll break the bank. And so what I recommended is that they get some of what we call conservation bundles. These are seedlings that are grown. Uh, they're very small. They're maybe, you know, a foot, two feet high above the ground, and then they have the roots. And it varies depending on what you buy. Uh, but they come in a bundle, and they're very inexpensive. Sometimes, you know, uh, under a dollar a piece, sometimes a couple of dollars maybe, but not generally not two dollars for conservation bundles. And to use eastern red cedar, look around. It's everywhere here. And it makes a really nice little small um, uh, uh, arborvitae or, or juniper looking plant. And in time, it grows into a very large tree. But for a long time, especially with some shearing, if you want some density, uh, you could create a really nice little hedgerow. And it's native, and it does well here. It, 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 you know, when we have droughts, it doesn't make all the eastern red cedar disappear. It survives them. Uh, and so it knows how to live here. And by doing a conservation bundle, because they're so inexpensive, uh, you can plant three or four times as close as you want with with the understanding that later you just come in and cut them off, remove them, so they end up at the right spacing. Because these are low plants, they may live, they may die, but if you put a bunch of them in, you can afford it at that price, uh, then it just gives you a little head start. And there's companies that will sell you uh, those grown. One company sells them in little four-inch pots, and so they come with the little root system in soil, uh, and they're grown in the a type of pot that doesn't allow root circling, or which we then leads to root girdling. Uh, it's a pot developed by a fellow named Whitcomb, Dr. Whitcomb up in Oklahoma, and it's a great pot. I wish all the nursery industry used pots. They don't have to be the specific ones he developed, but pots like that that prevent root circling. Uh, then we wouldn't have all these problems I'm talking about. But as a nursery, it sells for like two, two fifty, something like that. 
uh, individual little little cedars. And so maybe you just want a few for your for your uh, property. So choose things that want to be here, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. Now, I'm not a 100% native person at all. Uh, we have a lot of wonderful plants that do well here. Uh, there is a there are many reasons to do native. Number one, they're from here. Number two, a, a lot of uh, our wildlife depend on that. Uh, for example, birds. Uh, we're learning more and more how uh, a lot of the plants we bring in from other parts of the world that don't have a pest associated with them of any significance, uh, the birds don't have any caterpillars to eat. And caterpillars are important. Uh, for feeding their young when they're raising a nest full of uh, fledglings. And so that, that's, that's important to have. And all our native oaks and many other native plants, they have those kinds of pests here. They don't defoliate them. They don't ruin the thing, but they're there. And so another reason for natives is uh, those kinds of situations where it's an ecological uh, benefit. They're not uh, such a problem uh, in, in terms of for our wildlife. Uh, but there are plants that are not native that do well here. Plants from other parts of the world that are somewhat similar to our climate uh, may do also very well here. But make sure what you're planting, the species is well adapted. Secondly, if there's a variety, or I should say a cultivar, of that plant uh, that is especially well adapted, plant that. I often get a call from someone, and, and this is uh, an example of the kind of call, uh, but they say, I have a peach tree and it's having problems and so on. And I ask them what variety it is. And immediately I know, well, it's a variety that is not going to bloom at the right time to set fruit here. Uh, the chilling is too low or the chilling is too high. Uh, and so it's winter. Uh, it, it's confused every winter. Uh, it doesn't know no, know when it should be blooming. You bloom too early and the frost gets you. You bloom or you have too high of a chilling and you just barely sputter out a spring over a period of a month or two uh, and don't produce blooms that have any significant fruit or whatever on them. So that would be an example where variety is important. Another place where variety is important are things that are resistant to disease. There are roses that get a lot of black spot and a lot of powdery mildew. And there are roses that get only one of those or neither of those. And so choosing those kinds of plants uh, would be important for that. Sometimes different species do better. If you've got a shrub in the shade, if you, if you want a shrub in the shade, I wouldn't put Indian hawthorn in there. They're prone to a leaf spot called entomosporium. You get them in a shady bed and you've got a sprinkler coming on twice a week or something or more, and they're just going to be defoliated constantly from that. There are other shrubs that wouldn't be in that situation. So spend a little time doing some investigation. Uh, you can contact us at the Extension Office. Call us on this show. Uh, email us. Uh, our master gardeners are often doing educational programs out at the Demonstration Idea Garden up in North Bryan where the office used to be. Uh, and you can go and learn and visit and get some ideas because when you buy a bulb or a perennial or a lawn species, or a shrub, or a tree, or a fruit tree, those are long-term investments. And either they will not last, or not produce well, in the, or not bloom well, in the case of an ornamental, uh, or they'll be here getting better and better year after year. 
And so let us help you find things that are going to do well. And, and we're not the only source of that information, but we are local and we are research-based. And so I don't just wing it and say what I read somewhere or saw on Pinterest. We, we base what, we're, what we are recommending on things that have been tested by Texas A&M University, by other land-grant colleges throughout the South or other parts of the country in some cases, depending on the, the, the plant. Um, or, or other universities, and so they have a they have a research basis. Sometimes we we say evidence based, meaning it's been proven. It's not just it's not just something that you read somewhere. And the the garden industry has a wide range of players, like every industry does. And there are those who are very responsible. Uh, and fortunately, with our local folks, we we can we can rest in that. Uh, but then there's some that that just want to sell the product. And the further and wider they can sell it, you know, across the country, uh, the better off they are. And you, if you see something in the weekend newspaper, you know, the um, some plant that grows 10 feet a year and it's solid purple blooms, you know, that shows you a picture of them, ask, because nine times out of 10, it's going to be run away. Stick your money back in your pocket and run away. Uh, that they have major issues for those kind of things. So choosing well-adapted species and well-adapted varieties. So I know I've beat that horse to death. AgriLife does things called uh, earthkind roses that are particularly disease resistant. We, we, you can go online and see that. We have the uh, Texas Superstar plant list, plants tested across Texas that are superior uh, in the, their performance. Uh, and there are many other plants that aren't on either of those lists, but um, those are just some of the ways that you can get that good information. And uh, that way, you know, you spend time and money putting it in, and then you spend decades enjoying it uh, rather than than the uh, alternative. So let's see. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845 56 89, or you can reach me by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Well, let's go to the phones now and talk to Des. Hello, Des. Hey there. Um, I have a question about milkweed in my garden. Okay. I still have some milkweed that is green and has some blooms on it, and yeah. I was wondering when the best time would be to to cut it back. Uh, is this the one that's uh, orange and yellow? Yes, it is. Okay. So there's, f from a horticultural standpoint, you can cut it back anytime you want. You can leave it all winter and cut it back in the spring or cut it back now. It doesn't really matter. There, there is a, a microbe that can exist on milkweed that um, the butterflies or caterpillars that when they feed on it, it can make them sick and cause problems uh, for the, the species. And so as a result of that, for the milkweeds that, uh, the milkweed that tends to stick around a little too long, and that would be that tropical milkweed, some people call it Mexican milkweed, uh, they just cut them off at the ground earlier, uh, I, by now, if not even you know, a little before. Uh, you can do it now. And that way, they remove all the old plant parts and fresh new stuff will come up for next year. Uh, so that would be the reason to cut it off uh, now. 
the, the primary okay. reason. And that doesn't okay. mean your milkweed is infested with this protozoa or whatever it is, um, uh, but it just it's just a, another way to try to help you know the butterflies, which for various reasons are struggling. Okay, thank you very much. Now, is it different for different color milkweeds? Well, th there is a an orange milkweed that's that's like a little low ground cover, uh, not ground cover, little bush, a small bush on the ground. There's a tall milkweed that has kind of a pinkish white blooms. Uh, th th there's a swamp milkweed which has a kind of a reddish or light red pinkish kind of bloom. And e each of those, most of them are going to die back pretty quick anyway if they haven't already. And so it's not so much of a concern. I just wanted to make sure we were talking about what we what I thought we were. Got it. Okay, thank you very much. All right, thank you for the call, Des. Bye. Bye bye. Our phone number eight four five five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine or by email at garden success at tamu dot edu. Garden success at tamu dot edu. Okay, and I've gotten an email from Vanita and Vanita was listening this morning, and uh, uh, Vanita is a biologist, as a matter of fact. So uh, she was listening to the show, and she was uh, passing on that the guy who did the experience about the experiment experiment about plant masses it was Jan Van Helmont, Jan Van Helmont, and uh, it was in the early 1600s. So that is a way back. Um, so I thank you for for sharing that. That's good. I I was trying to pull out of my head the actual weight difference in the plant and it was it, it's just astounding uh, when you think about it because uh, that we just don't think about the if you take any plant in your yard and let's say you pull it up and you weigh it um, just the plant the majority of that is water unless it's a dry dead leaf for example you know of course or a stick but the majority of it is water and then the rest of it, the majority by far, almost all of it is water or it came up from the air, came from the air. The nutrients are, are a part of it, but they're the smaller part of it. Uh, and so uh, that's why something like a tree, uh, you know, could, could grow without uh, taking any weight to speak of, any appreciable weight uh, out of the soil. So thank you, Vanita. I appreciate that. Jan van Helmont back in the 1600s. Pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, it's just another reminder of why uh, the, just the natural systems that we have, the way they work, the way that um, uh, plants build their own soil. They, they do over time. Uh, you know, I mentioned tree leaves and the value of those. But think about grasses. Uh, a grass root lives about one year. Now, that's a big generalization, but a, that's about right. Uh, and so this root pushes down into the soil, and it opens up an airway or a passageway through the soil, and it's full of organic matter. It's nutrients the plant took up, and then it dies, and now you have dead organic matter in this opening where air can move through. Uh, sometimes earthworms will even follow that path to feed on that organic matter, but they typically are coming up to the surface to get get stuff. Uh, and so if you were to do a time lapse over, let's say, five years, and you have a clump of grass, maybe you have an ornamental grass sitting out in your yard, all those roots that are being pushed down 
and the soil and then dying and and rotting away and then here comes new ones and it's a constant cycle going on over five years it's almost like you rototilled that soil now i'm not saying it's it's crumbly loose uh totally but i just mean that it the soil is being broken up it's the structure of the soil is improving because of the microbial activity uh, the substances that microbes produce just the the loosening the aeration of it and everything and it, it just nature takes care of it, its soil. Sometimes agriculturalists and gardeners don't, but good gardeners and most farmers who hope to be making a living for any period of time, they're going to do things that take care of their soil because that's our livelihood. And so soil erosion, uh, you know, if, if you're don't take care of your soil and you, you we end up with well like the dust bowl back back in the earlier part of maybe 20s or late 20s uh the, the that's the result of some poor soil care practices and the same can be done uh, with other things that we do so good gardeners good farmers know that the success of plants is in the soil i uh, often will tell gardeners that by the time you put a plant or a seed in the soil in your yard, flower, herb, vegetable, whatever, you are 80% of the way to success or failure because you have either prepared the soil or you haven't. And that is the single most important thing. Now, some plants grow in the native soil as it is. And we've talked about natives and things like that earlier, but it improves them to improve the soil. And it, you've chosen a spot that's sunny or shady, and the plant is going to have a big opinion about that. Uh, you've chosen a spot that's well-drained or poorly drained, and that will get you uh, back to the nursery to buy a new plant pretty quick if you don't give it good drainage. Uh, and so it, everything you do before you plant is way more important than the things we do after. That's not to saying watering and fertilizing and pruning and all that isn't important. Of course it is. But in terms of overall big success, you, you need to take care of the soil first. Spend your money on the brown stuff before you spend your money on the green stuff, if you, if you see what I'm saying. And, and that way, we know we're going to have success in the long run. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success today. Uh, we are, of course, coming to you live. Next week, we'll have a recorded show where we're going to have uh, special guests and, and visit with them a little bit. And I, I look forward to that and I encourage you to tune in then as well. And we'll see you again live for your calls uh, the following Thursday. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com.
Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.